Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Each week this year, we will hear a Dvar Torah on the weekly Parsha from our Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Aviva Richman. Let's listen. Hi, this is Aviva Richman with Hadar sharing thoughts on Parsha Dvarim, Rebuke and Revelation. In Parsha Dvarim, Moshe gives an account of Torah reframing the journey in the desert for the next generation that will enter the land. Some commentaries find not-so-subtle subtexts in Moshe's introductory remarks that create a bleak picture of Israel's propensity to sin. Parshat Devarim always falls before Tisha B'Av, and this motif of rebuke aligns with a day that brings failures and destruction to the forefront of our minds. But taken in context as the beginning of Moshe's final speech to the people An emphasis on sin is a depressing frame for a recapitulation of Torah. Perhaps the focus on rebuke is meant to motivate the people to be more careful in their actions. Even so, some interpretations veer away from a theology that constantly points a finger at our failures. Instead, we encounter a sense of God who takes responsibility to proactively steer humanity towards success. Moshe's speech begins with a list of places in Dvarim. In an early interpretive strand, each place name is a veiled rebuke of the people's past sins. These are the words that Moshe addressed to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, through the wilderness, in the Arava, the plain, near Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Lavan, Chatzirot, and Dizahav. Some of these place names are more obvious references to sin. For example, Dizahav is understood to refer to the gold of the golden calf. Rashi links Chatzirot to Korach's rebellion or perhaps to Miriam's ill speech. Once this frame is adopted, however, even apparently innocuous or wondrous references turn into rebukes. The reference to Suf, which would seem to be the Sea of Reeds, is not a recollection of revelation and celebration, but a reminder of the people's complaints when they stood on the banks of the raging sea. The seemingly neutral term Midbar is considered out of place because they are no longer in the desert, but in the plains of Moab, so it must be alluding to their murmuring about dying in the wilderness. When the verse uses arava, which would seem to be the right term to use to describe their location in the plains of Moab, it becomes a reminder of their sin with the woman of Midian that occurred in the plains of Moab. A litany of rebukes seems like a dark way to begin the last book of the Torah and Moshe's last words to the people. The Midrash, though, states that the fact that Moshe delivered these words to all of Israel speaks highly of them. It indicates that they were all masters of rebuke, ba'alei tochacha. They knew how to receive feedback. The rabbis praise this generation of the desert for this attribute and bemoan their own generation where there are no masters of rebuke to be found. No one skilled either in giving or receiving rebuke. This approach to Devarim values our ability to hold our past failures and our propensity to mess up front and center in our consciousness. Here, as when we trace our roots back to Cain the murderer, we are asked to see everything 
through the lens of our capacity to do wrong. In this approach to Devarim, there is no whitewashing through the nostalgia of memory. Rather, every step of the way, even the moments of greatest elation in the desert journey, is refracted through a singular focus on how we can veer off course. But there is a counterbalancing narrative. Rashi stresses that these rebukes are veiled, not direct, out of a desire to respect the people's dignity. In fact, these phrases may not be rebuking the people at all. It is most telling to probe the final location, the Zahab, which is interpreted in two very different ways. One early interpretation picks up on its placement at the end of the list and on the meaning of the word D or die enough to infer that the sin of the golden calf was when God had enough. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, even though chronologically it happened earlier than some of the others on the list. In the logic of memory, it stands out as the most egregious sin. It is the climax, the harshest rebuke of the people. But there is also an entirely different reading in which the name Dizahav points to God's role in providing the people with so much gold in the first place. While this might sound like even further incrimination of the people, they diverted God's blessing of wealth towards corrupt ends. The Talmud sees it as a rebuke of God, not of the people. This is from Brachot 32a. Rabbi Elazar said, Moshe spoke impertinently toward God on high. The sages of the school of Rabbi Yane offered proof from here. Di Zahav. What is the meaning of Di Zahav? The sages of the school of Rabbi Yane said that Moshe said the following before the Holy Blessed One, Master of the Universe, because of the gold and silver that you lavished upon Israel until they said, Enough, die, that caused Israel to make the golden calf. Rabbi Chia Bar Abbas said that Rabbi Yochanan said, This is comparable to a person who had a son, bathed him, and anointed him, fed him, gave him drink, and hung a purse of money around his neck. He brought him to the entrance of a brothel. What could the son possibly do to avoid sinning? Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said that Rabbi Yonatan said, From where in the Torah is it derived that the Holy Blessed One ultimately conceded to Moshe? As it is stated, in Hosea, and I gave them an abundance of silver and gold, which they used for Baal. In this take on the golden calf incident, God set the people up for failure, in part by giving them so much gold. It is not totally clear how all of the other parts in this brothel analogy map onto God's actions towards Israel in the desert, but this interpretation is a total swerve from the view that sees Moshe's introductory speech as a litany of Israel's offenses. In this view, Moshe directs his rebuke towards God, not towards the people. As he nears the end of his life and the end of a career defending the people, he throws in a final attack at God. The Talmud describes this as speaking impertinently or shooting arrows at God. He demands that God take responsibility for how the people's actions are an outgrowth of what God puts in place. Perhaps he hopes that God will take this to heart with the new generation and strive to set them up for success rather than failure. Similarly, the story of the spies, an extensive rebuke in this parsha, can also be seen through a theological lens that asks God to set up the people to succeed rather than to sin. There are stark differences between Moshe's account in Devarim here compared to the initial narrative in Bamidbar. 
One central problem is whether the idea to send spies originated with the people or with God. In Varim, the people demand to send spies, and Moshe rebukes them for an apparent lack of trust. But in Parshat Shlach, God commands the people to send spies. If it was indeed from God, why a divine instruction to the people to go on this mission that would go so wrong? Did God intend to set up the people for failure? In his commentary on the account of the spies, the medieval commentator the Ramban, Nachmanides, goes to great lengths at every step of the way to interpret God's role and Moshe's instructions as a reflection of goodwill, trying to set the people up for success. The people wanted to send only two individuals, as is the usual way to send scouts, but God and Moshe instructed them to send a representative from each tribe, as this had more hope for success. The questions Moshe posed were not a setup to test whether or not the people would have faith that the land was good and they could conquer it. Rather, God wanted them to become excited about the land, to know its beauty more tangibly before they arrived. So they would already be in a state of joyful anticipation and desire when they entered. God cared about their emotional state, not only about the material gift of the land itself. This is a theology deeply committed to knowing how much God wants us to thrive, material and emotionally. It is entirely different from a theology where God constantly tests us and wants us to focus on our propensity for sin. In Devarim, as Moshe gets ready to reenact the moment of revelation at Sinai for the next generation, he wants to ensure that history won't repeat itself, that this time, when God connects with the people through Torah, their relationship won't go awry. For this reason, before he gives over the ten utterances at Sinai, he begins this account with words of rebuke. The people need to understand their responsibility around Torah, that their actions and behaviors matter, before they are ready to relive revelation. But these words of rebuke are not only towards the people, they are also towards God. Moshe cannot reforge this relationship until God takes responsibility for setting up structures that will enable the people to thrive, not flounder. If the book of Devarim represents the recounting of Torah for all generations post-Sinai, Moshe's introductory speech stresses that this can only happen when there is an awareness of mutual responsibility on our part and God's part to make this encounter work. Shabbat Shalom. We'll do a melody for a verse from the book of Eicha in honor of Tishabah. Shivri kamayim libeich nochach pnei Hashem. Kumi roni balayla, mei rosh ashmurot. Shivri kamayim libeich nochach pnei Hashem. Shivri gamayim libech, nochach penei Hashem. Shivri gamayim libech, nochach penei Hashem. Shivri gamayim libech, nochach penei Hashem. Shivri gamayim libech. 
This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.